A hedge fund is a collection of investors that make bets on the future. The hedge refers to the fact that the investors often try to diversify their strategies so that the direction of their bets are less correlated, and they can be successful in a variety of future scenarios. Engineering-focused hedge funds have used what might be called machine learning for a long time to predict what happens in the future. Numeri is a hedge fund that crowdsources its investment strategies by allowing anyone to train models against Numeri's data. A model that succeeds in a simulated environment will be adopted by Numeri and used within its real money portfolio. The engineers who create the models are rewarded in proportion to how well the models perform. Xander Dunn is a software engineer at Numeri, and in this episode, he explains what a hedge fund is, why the traditional strategies are not optimal, and how Numeri creates the right incentive structures to crowdsource market intelligence. This interview was fun and thought-provoking, and actually quite difficult because I was having trouble totally understanding what the long-term vision of Numeri could be if it succeeds. Numeri is one of those companies that makes me very excited about the future, and I hope to have other people from Numeri on the show to discuss the business further. Xander Dunn is a software engineer at Numeri. Xander, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much. Numeri is a new kind of hedge fund, and I want to work our way towards discussing Numeri with some simpler discussions. First of all, what is a hedge fund? Mm. Well, very simply, a hedge fund is um, a collection of money that allocates those funds into the stock market, typically. I mean, you have some alternative investments, so hedge funds that invest in cryptocurrencies. But typically, you've got hedge funds that invest in the U.S. stock market or worldwide stock markets, Japan, etc. What does the term hedge refer to? Mm. So actually... Um, hedging bets. So in terms of actually um, creating risk portfolios and making decisions based on those risk assessments. So it's basically, I have some idea of what the market is going to do, and I'm going to hedge based on that idea. So I'm going to uh, make certain balances to uh, have a good risk portfolio, those kinds of things. Hmm. So what's the financial structure of a hedge fund? You have investors, you have people who are actually placing bets. Where are the incentives in a typical hedge fund? I think I see what you're asking. So actually, a hedge fund will have LPs, limited partners, and the limited partners are external to the hedge fund, and they have nothing to do with what the fund actually does. So the limited partners will uh, give some amount of money to the fund, and then the fund will be completely responsible for actually allocating that. Okay, let's talk about the market even more broadly. There's some large percentage of the market that is automated. You could call it bots, you could call it automated trading. Even the humans that are doing trading are mostly using automated orders. Can you give me a sense for what kind of software hedge funds and trading desks are using? Yeah, that's a good question. So I suppose it depends very much on what kind of trading you're doing. So there are funds that trade on very long time horizons. So that's six months to five years sort of trading. And that trading might not even be automated because there's really no need to. It's such a long-term position. And then you have high-speed trading, which is taking place on nanoseconds. So obviously, that's uh, very much automated. And those are probably mostly custom software suites written by the funds themselves. But uh, of course, there are tons of software suites that typical hedge funds use. They have um, software that interfaces with um, with funds, uh, sorry, with, what's the term? NASDAQ, for example. Right, um, exchanges. Yeah, exchanges, thank you, yes. Different packages that interface with exchanges to place trades or to go through various brokers, etc. Right, so machine learning has crept into Wall Street over time. 
I think machine learning has been used before it was even called machine learning at places like Jane Street or other trading firms, you know, through Wall Street. How prevalent is machine learning in Wall Street? And by the way, I totally understand you are not a financial expert for context for people who are listening who don't know Xander. He's a software engineer. He's got a background in software engineering. He's never worked in finance. Uh, so I'm asking you this as somebody who may not have any insight to this, but I would love to know, like, what's your perspective for how trading companies use machine learning? Yeah, that's very accurate insofar as my finance background, <laughs> non-existent. But it's my understanding that most funds are not doing anything like machine learning. So you do have quantitative finance, which is probably the closest that most funds come to doing machine learning. And I think you have some funds like Two Sigma or Renaissance Technologies that probably are doing some machine learning. And those are the kinds of funds you'll actually see with booths at NIPS. They're, they're really interested in that kind of talent. But those are really, really rare for hedge funds. And for the most part, hedge funds are not using machine learning at all. And actually, I think what most of them do is what I call voodoo trading. It's kind of uh, humans making bad decisions based, based off of very little data because humans actually can't put very much data in their brains. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll get to that question later <laughs> on. I have some follow-up questions about that. But a company that's doing machine learning or actually basically any type of trading, they're typically building financial models. So a model is a vision for the way that the world is and where the world might be going. Describe what goes into a financial model. Yeah, so there's a huge spectrum for what could go into a financial model. So closer to our end of the spectrum, you can have something like scraping quarterly earnings reports and then doing some kind of analysis based on how frequently does something appear in the report or like um, what do the numbers look like in the report. And you could make, um, on the one hand, you could make a report, a human digestible report and make trades based off of that. Or on the other hand, you could frame it in a machine learning problem format where you actually predict the market directly from that information, whether it's word frequencies or uh, number trends. But I guess like the simplest financial model would be like take stock price data and just see if you can find trends. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, where random walk theory comes into play. And you find out that doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the basic idea of a financial model or a super a super basic financial model would be I think companies that um, I think companies that are about to IPO are going to be worth a lot. That's a financial model. Right. It's a stupid one, right. but that's an example of something super simple you could do to allocate funds. Does a model just present a version of the world or does it also make trades? I would say a model simply presents a version of the world. Okay. And uh, yeah, there are various degrees of how you connect that to making trades. So you could actually include in your model making various things like risk balancing, or you could not. And then um, your, your model is just saying, I think this will go up and this will go down. And then it's somebody else's job to uh, balance risk. So like, I don't want to have all of my funds allocated in a single market. I don't want everything I buy to be in agriculture. That's very risky. So you want to balance it across, oh, I have some tech and some agriculture, some in Japan, some in the US. Um, so you, you could structure your model such that whatever it whatever comes out of it is exactly what you will be pl placing on the exchange. Or there can be various degrees of humans, uh, human decision-making between the model and the actual exchange. The picture you're painting is hedge funds, typical hedge funds, have a bunch of people working for them. Maybe those people all work off the same model. Maybe they all make their own models. And then they make some human decisions based off of those models 
they probably have some strategic sort of uh, like framework for how they're positioning a trade, maybe some combination of options and stock and uh, futures or something. What's wrong with that approach? What do you take? Because I sense that you have some disagreement with that being the best approach. Yeah, very much. I, I very much disagree with that approach. And the market doesn't like it either. Hedge funds have been slaughtered this past year. I mean, if you just Google hedge fund, all of the news reports are about how awful hedge funds did this past year. So I, I disagree with this position because I think it's largely a crapshoot. I think there's a huge survivorship bias, and the few funds we see that are doing well are just kind of the long tail of some of some uh, Monte Monte Carlo simulation. So I guess, in really simple terms, I think this is wrong because the market is nothing but numbers. It's literally just massive amounts of numbers. Whether those numbers are crop yields or Twitter sentiment or stock prices or whatever. And humans are just really bad at numbers. I mean, uh, how many numbers can you fit in your head at once and uh, visualize them or understand them? The answer is not very many. So that's exactly what machine learning is really good at, finding trends in massive amounts of data. And for the same reason that now is the perfect time to be doing image recognition, it's the perfect time to be applying it to large sets of data related to the stock market. We've been, uh, we've been, I guess, our capability to execute machine learning models has been greatly increased because of the hardware we have now. And machine learning research has really taken off with uh, Google Brain, DeepMind, OpenAI. There's an immense amount of progress in it. And I think it's exactly the sort of thing that's really good at understanding the market. So we're seeing this tipping point in certain games. So poker has gotten to the point where machines beat humans. Uh, same thing with Go, obviously. I'm not sure what the status is on the centaur chess sort of thing, because there was a question for a while, at least, maybe this is still a question, is the centaur, which is a human working with a computer, better than the computer working by itself? Mm-hmm. My perspective from the AlphaGo thing, it, it sounds like that basically the computer working alone has surpassed the centaur. I think you'd agree with me that that's an inevitability. Mm-hmm once you can refine a problem enough but the market seems like a pro- seems like like a ma- like a maximally complex problem and i guess what i'm asking is do we have enough refinement at this point where we can say yes the completely automated solution beats the human working together with the automated solution, which is basically what we have in most of these hedge funds that you're talking about, people that are making models and then they're like thinking through it and then they're making a iron condor or whatever and saying, okay, we're doing the iron condor and that's our strategy for this. Uh, are we there yet where we can do a completely automated solution? Yeah, certainly. I mean, so the ultimate answer to that question is what are your returns? <laughs> Like that's the, that's the, what are your returns and over what time period? That's the ultimate answer to your question. So if my claim is correct, then that will beat the market. And if my claim is incorrect, then over a long enough time period, uh, it will not beat the market. And I suppose our track record is very small simply because we're a new company. We've been trading for just over a year. So I can't point to that as conclusive evidence yet. But there are a lot of things you can do in the intermediary. So you can, you can, for example, train machine learning models on time periods or portions of data and then actually execute it across time periods or portions of data that have actually happened, but it's never seen before. Backtesting. Yes, exactly. Backtesting. So that's one useful data point in knowing does this does this actually perform? Okay, so let's get into what Numerai is. We could have some more far-fledged conversations. What is Numerai? Yeah, Numerai is a hedge fund. And our fundamental thesis is that we can take data sets and make those data 
available to anyone in the world and that we will get from anonymous data scientists around the world really good predictions from those data sets. And these data scientists compete on our tournament, on our website. There's a leaderboard, and it shows you the current rankings of all these data scientists, thousands of them around the world. And we create a meta model, an ensemble of all of these predictions. And then actually, we use the output of that meta model to place the trades for our fund. So they're actually competing to control the funds in our, the, the money in our hedge fund. And they are paid based on the quality of their predictions. So the people with the best predictions will be paid the most. And so it's this um, feedback loop of them producing better predictions, us doing better on the market, we, we can pay them more, etc. Okay, let's say I'm a new trader to the platform. I want to start competing in a tournament and I want to you know, ramp up my credibility so that I can have more of the portfolio allocated towards me. What is the onboarding system and what kind of code am I writing? Give me a picture for what the what a trader that is participating in a tournament trying to get onboarded, what do they do? Yeah, that's a good question. I wouldn't actually even call them traders because they're not really making any trading decisions. Okay. Not directly anyway. So the onboarding procedure would actually be super simple. You go to the website, you click sign up, same as any website. Okay, now you have an account. You download the data. Anyone can download the data. You can download the data. Even if you don't make an account, you can download the data. You open up the data. It's just a CSV file, uh, just a, a simple text file with all of the values. And then you conduct some machine learning on it. So I think most of our users will use Python or R. And I mean, simplest example, do a logistic regression. So we give out two sets. We give a training set and a tournament set. The training set has targets. So you train your logistic regression to predict those targets. And then you test, you, you predict using your trained logistic regression on the tournament set. And then those values that you have predicted are what you actually submit to us on our website. You just upload your text file of values. You have a prediction for each row of our data. Okay, so this CSV that I download to get started, does this get updated or? Yes, on a weekly basis. So our tournaments are are one week long. So at the every Wednesday, actually, we give out a new data set. Ah, so I see. So the, so the training set is what are you building your model based on? Yes. And then the tournament set is data basically, quote unquote, from the same pool, but it's a larger data set. And by testing against that, testing their model that they trained against the training data set on that tournament data set, you get to make sure, okay, did they overfit certain things to the training data set? If they did, they're probably not going to perform well in the tournament. But if they made a model that's very intelligent, then it's going to extrapolate to the tournament data set. Yeah, that's a great point. Generalization is very important. So we kind of have a built-in backtest. So a portion of the tournament set, we actually know the answers to. It's actually already happened. Okay. And so we can grade them approximately based on their performance on that set of data because we know the answers. We haven't given the answers out, so they don't know them, but we do. So we test them based on that, and that gives us an initial idea of how it might perform. Uh, and then there's also some portion of the tournament set that we do not know the answers to. That's actually live data what, that's happening now on the stock market. And these values, these predictions, are what we actually trade based on. When you said you know the answer to it, Sorry, the targets. We actually know... Um, so let, let's give it a, a simple example. Sure, please. One row of the data set could be Apple. Okay. And so we'll have a, a bunch of features, a bunch of values for Apple, and then we'll have a target. And so this is saying, this target is saying Apple at this time was a zero or a one. It was 
a goodbye or not a goodbye. Okay. And so then uh, those are the answers. When I say we have mm. the answers,、oh, we、okay. have those targets. Okay. So the targets in the training set are things that we have the answers for. We actually know that's what what happened on the stock market. And then the same is true for some portion of the tournament set, even though we don't give that out. So the thing that people should take away from this,、uh, whether or not they want to know in machine learning and machine learning stuff in detail, is、uh, you get started, you've got a playground to play in to build your model, and then you can test that model in an actual tournament. If you do well in the tournament, you're going to rise in the leaderboard, and the leaderboard dictates how much of the numerai funds. Are allocated to your strategy. Is that correct? Yeah, that's quite accurate. Okay, the core principles of Numerai include open participation and anonymity. Can you explain those two principles? We're the most open hedge fund in human history. Unlike any other hedge fund ever, all of our data are public. So you, you're not going to be able to get data from any other hedge fund in the world. It's A huge problem. I mean, if you if Two Sigma were to release the datasets that they're using, then they would、uh, lose their advantage, and other hedge funds would be able to trade based on their data. We don't have this problem because、uh, we obfuscate our data in a manner that preserves structure. So the machine learning potential is preserved, but I can't tell what it is in the real world. It doesn't. It doesn't relate to. Uh, the actual stock market, so I wouldn't be able to place trades on it. We can place trades on it because we know what every row corresponds to, but you don't know that, so you wouldn't be able to place trades based on our data. So yeah, any, unlike any other hedge fund, anyone can download our data. <coughs> And then, in terms of anonymity, we don't collect any information about our data scientists. Uh, it can be anyone. You can use Tor to participate in our in our tournament.、Um, it's just you have a user you have a username, password, and an email address. That those can be anything. Give me more clarity on where these data sets come from. Ah, so we don't actually talk about where our data come from. Oh, okay. So you get the data from somewhere,、uh, or maybe that's like your se- your special sauce, like aggregating. But but it, it, can you tell me about like what the contents of the data are? Is it like the the quote unquote, quote unquote price of something at a given time, or like a quote that you're getting from somewhere? You're aggregating a quote from across different exchanges. Yeah. So I I think actually exactly what is the underlying data isn't the right question. Oh, okay. I think the right way to think about it is, um, it could be any kind of data. So this could be. Um, this could be tweets that have been turned into、uh, vectors. Wow! This could be sure. It could be fundamentals. It could be something we scraped off of、uh, off of quarterly earnings reports. It could be something from、uh, standard stock prices. But wow! The the basic idea is that you take any kind of data set and you. You attempt to correlate it to the future of the stock market, right? And is it machine learnable? Like, do we get wow valuable predictions from data scientists? Now I'm seeing the scope of this company and how big it is because you could you could predict pretty much anything. Exactly. Yes, we're not specific to any kind of data. We have no loyalty to any particular kind of data set, and indeed our Our mission is definitely to take、uh, anything we can and actually release it to make correlations to the stock market. So, Numerai has its own cryptocurrency, which is Numerare, and this is used to show confidence in how well predictions will do. Explain what this is. Numerare is really exciting for us. So. Currently, as I was describing, data scientists are rewarded based on their performance on this kind of backtest, this portion of our tournament set that we already know the targets to. But that's not really what we care about. It's not what the hedge fund cares about. Numerai, we really care about 
predictions that will perform well on the future, on um, the live stock market. Okay. So there's this uh, kind of incentive misalignment at the moment. They have incentive, the data scientists have an incentive to overfit to our private data set. Mm. And we actually want them to have incentive to generalize to the future. Right. And so we're creating this mechanism such that they are actually in such that this incentive is completely aligned. Wow. So basically what I can do once I've submitted predictions to the website, I can stake Numeraire to indicate my confidence of my predictions to perform, to generalize to the livestock market. Wow. Yeah. And so then these Numeraire will actually be held in a contract. Okay. Completely outside of Numerai's control. And at the end of some time period, one month, three months, something like that, you will, your numeraire will actually be either destroyed if you were wrong, you did not perform, you did not generalize to the livestock market, or you will actually, the, your numeraire will be returned, and then also numerai will give you uh, some additional payout, it, some USD payout. Currently, we pay USD in Bitcoin, but the basic idea is that your numeraire are not destroyed and you get more money. You get more money. You don't get more numeraire. Correct. You actually get numeraire by competing in our weekly tournament, which is still based on this backtest principle. So you could think of it as two tournaments running in parallel. One is this weekly tournament to, for a backtest, and one is this three-month-long tournament for live test. Is there resale value on the numeraire? Yeah, definitely. So... We expect that there will be some secondary market value for Numeraire. Just as you can exchange dollars for Bitcoin on exchanges, the same thing will inevitably happen for Numeraire. Just as if, just as Ether is on secondary markets, etc. It's not something we'll be able to facilitate, but it will likely happen. And so having that dollar value, you actually know the value of each Numeraire you hold. And so you can actually, you, you can actually understand the risk that you're taking. Right. Risk so, run. Yes, exactly. So you can actually reason, okay, I'm super confident about my predictions. I know based on how I created my model, how I created my predictions, I know that it will win in the live stock market. So you can actually, so then you, you know that you should place a lot of USD value on that confidence. You should place a lot of numeraire on that confidence. And so then you expect the value of numeraire to increase as the value of numerize fund increases because numerai will be able to pay out more money. Um, and this, it's this feedback loop. Makes sense. Numeraire is going to be deployed to the Ethereum blockchain. That's correct. Ethereum is built with smart contracts in mind, and the basis for the way this currency works is the smart contract defined by what Numerai is saying. Like the basically, the smart contract is these properties about how Numerai is wagered, how you are rewarded based on how much Numerai you've wagered. And so I did all these shows about Ethereum and people were talking about smart contracts and I was yeah. like, okay, so what is a smart contract used for? Yeah. And there was some conversation around, oh, you can use a smart contract to standardize how you would build an Uber-like service yeah. on the blockchain. And I was yeah. like, okay, I still don't quite understand okay. how that works, yeah. but I think I'm understanding it better thanks to your description of Numeraire. Yeah. Give me an idea of why it is on the Ethereum blockchain. Yes, that's a great question. So it's it's on the Ethereum blockchain because it facilitates creating some trustless interactions and it facilitates creating something with value that is not under our control. It is not under Numerai's control. So once these these tokens, these numeraire tokens, are in the possession of some data scientist, we cannot take them back. Right. And 
It's also very important that the value of these tokens is tied to Numerai. So we could do the same thing with Bitcoin in terms of giving out tokens that we can't take back. But what we cannot do with Bitcoin is create a network effect where the value of that token is the value of Numerai. So there's this huge incentive for everyone who holds Numerair to make the value of Numerai go up. You want the fund to do better. And that's extraordinarily powerful for Numerai because you couldn't do that with Bitcoin because you can't affect the price of Bitcoin. I mean, unless you're some massive portion of Bitcoin's outstanding value, you're not going to be able to do that. Whereas with Numerair, it is in particular to Numerai. It is for Numerai's fund. And it is paid out based entirely on how well Numerai's fund is doing. Right. Got it. But help me understand why you need to build that on the Ethereum blockchain as a smart contract rather than building your own cryptocurrency. Oh, I see. From the ground up. Yeah. Well, that's just hard. (laughs) (laughs) So is this what Ethereum was ultimately built to do? Is like facilitate this kind of like build your own cryptocurrency. Like we're a platform for cryptocurrency. I never heard it be called a platform for cryptocurrencies. I heard it be right. called a platform for smart contracts. Right. But you're basically saying a smart contract is e- or a, uh, you could draw an equivalence between smart contracts and currencies. Yes, you can. So smart contracts are just programs. Nothing more, nothing less. And I mean, you can imagine an incredibly, you could have a super simple smart contract that every time you send Ether to it, it would just send back that Ether. That's a smart contract. It's a super duper simple program. And then... Is that a currency too? uh, No, I, no, no, no. I wouldn't describe that as um, a a token or a currency. That's just, uh, that, that would just be like... Yeah, that's just a trivial, like, oh, I got something, okay, send it back. Right. Um, but kind of, I guess, a currency on as a smart contract, they're actually called tokens in terms of smart contracts. Mm. A, a token written as a smart contract is actually, you basically create your own... You, you basically create your own tracking system. So, like, you have this integer, and this integer is all of the numeraire. This is all of your tokens. And then based on whatever logic you put in it, it can be extraordinarily complicated. It could be super simple. These numeraire are sent to addresses or they're destroyed or they're whatever you want. I mean, I guess a super simple token, a smart contract would be just mint, like you have a, let's say we have a fixed 1 million and Every week, I send 10,000 of those to a particular address. That's a, that's a token on the Ethereum blockchain. I mean, there's, there's no intelligence there. There's nothing that makes that token interesting. But that's an example of a super simple test token as a smart contract. And Ethereum here is just serving as like the shared ledger that is backing this right. This state. Yes. Basically, I view Ethereum as infrastructure. So I don't want to have to create my own distributed ledger, my own logic. I mean, the like it would be extremely difficult to replicate what Ethereum has done on our own. And instead, we can simply piggyback on it. We don't have to create our own blockchain. We can simply use their blockchain. And it executes on every node in the world that is executing uh, Ethereum nodes. So it's basically an infrastructure that we can use without having to create it all ourselves. What are the hard engineering problems you're working on right now? Yeah, we have a lot of those. (laughs) (laughs) So I suppose one definition of hard is mathematically hard. So actually, is there a solution to this? Those are the hard problems that I find really interesting. And so we have a lot of encryption and machine learning related problems internally that are very hard problems. So for instance, it's, it's very important that the way we present our data to the world is done in a manner that not only preserves all of the important information that makes it machine learnable, but also that it would be very difficult for 
some an adversary or some other hedge fund yeah. to discover what it actually is. This is homomorphic so, encryption, right? Yes, exactly. So you're preserving some homomorphism in your data, preserve some structure that you're interested in, but completely obfuscate what the original data were. And this is like a cutting edge field, right? This is like n- nobody, or there's a lot of like work around it, but not great answers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, it's. Not- I mean, what's the state of the art of homomorphic encryption and where are we bottlenecked right now? Right. So we have fully homomorphic encryption, which is to say you can preserve all structure in the data. But, and, and as a matter of fact, we even have pretty efficient fully homomorphic encryption. Most people are mistaken in thinking that it's inefficient. So, for example, Microsoft published a paper just last year where they fully homomorphically encrypted the MNIST dataset. It's your standard, simple image dataset that's used as a benchmark in AI. And they fully homomorphically encrypted this image dataset and then successfully trained and tested a deep network on this encrypted data. And it gets your standard 99% accuracy on the MNIST dataset. The difficulty with this, actually, the hard part here, the remaining thing for this being practical for something like numerized use, is that you actually have to be aware of the encryption of the encryption used on the data set to be able to interface with the data. So like if I took this fully homomorphically encrypted data and just ran it through any old net in TensorFlow or any popular deep learning library, you would learn absolutely nothing. It's just garbage. It's just noise. So what you actually have to do is is write your neural net, structure your neural net with knowledge of the polynomials in the homomorphic encryption. So that's just really impractical for us because you go from the number of data scientists in the world who are capable of performing complex machine learning on any data set is quite small. Right. And then if you add on to that the requirement of, oh, you also have to know how to write all of your algorithms from scratch with knowledge of homomorphic encryption, then you're down to like a handful of experts. So that's just not practical for us. That's kind of the state of the art in homomorphic encryption research. And it's also, it also feels like um, it's a bit stagnated in that there haven't been really any interesting breakthroughs recently in homomorphic encryption. But you have this, you have this whole spectrum of, um, Encryption. So on the, on the one end of it, you have obfuscation, which isn't really encryption. It's just like do a random projection or something that just obliterates the values into some new distribution. You're going to preserve structure, but it's not really encryption. There's, there are no guarantees. It's just uh, some new distribution. And then on the far other end of that, you have fully homomorphic encryption. But you also have partial homomorphisms. So you can actually preserve specific specific features in data without actually having that requirement of knowing detailed information about the encryption that was used. The anonymity being so important to the way that Numeri functions is so interesting to me because when you look at finance, I, I worked in finance very briefly, five months I worked at a trading place, and there's a lot of, you know, if I think about a leaderboard, typically a leaderboard, if you take a bunch of finance people especially, they're not going to want to be anonymous. They're doing this because they want people to know that they're making volumes and volumes of money. Mm-hmm. The impression I get with Numeri is this is catering to a different type of person that mm-hmm. wants to play the stock market game. This is a type of person that's just in it because it's an interesting problem. Mm-hmm. Um but what's like what's the bigger vision here because i see anonymity that is something that caters like if you have a completely anonymous leaderboard mm-hmm. that's something that caters to a very different type of personality than is historically found on wall street mm-hmm. why is anonymity so crucial to what you are building first of all i'd say you don't have to be anonymous 
So if someone on our leaderboard who's doing very well, like Xerox, if he wanted to be publicly known, he could very easily do so. I mean, you could you could prove that that this account belongs to you, and uh, that and everyone can see how much that account has made on the website. So it's basically just not something we're forcing. We're not forcing okay. we're not forcing us to know who who is participating, and that's simply because it's not an integral component. The integral component is people who are really good at machine learning who want to either A, solve hard problems, or both A and B, get paid for it. And the long-term vision for us, the, like the vision, yeah. is that we actually don't think the world needs another hedge fund. Yeah, We think the world needs one hedge fund controlled by every AI. Right. So this is a platform for AI. Mm -hmm. AIs are our end customer. Yeah. And so we really see a future where efficiency of the market is greatly increased be sure. because you have some amazing AIs that are making am amazing predictions. Because then you basically have people... So if you take this to the extreme where Numerai is the only game in town and you just have data scientists ensembling their models into mm -hmm. uh, making bets on the market, mm -hmm. and that market is, again, entirely defined by Numerai, then the only thing they're really betting on is the pure stochasticism that is really hard to define. Like, they're basically betting on physics or weather or d genetic mutations that we don't understand, right? <laughs> is, is that accurate? Because, cause, I mean, th that, that takes so much of the... Um, determinism like you know the missed opportunities for determinism. so i think of a market inefficiency as a missed opportunity to act on something that is deterministic yeah 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 i think that's completely accurate and there are a lot of those things yeah and i think some of the examples you gave are accurate i mean the weather is largely deterministic so hmm. even if that's okay, what it comes true. down to right. i mean maybe maybe that's something you can. As a matter of fact, that is something you can place trades based on. So you're right. I mean, it, when when AIs are considering every conceivable piece of information and making the right decisions based on all of that information, then we have a market that is way more efficient. And that's better for everyone. The entire sure. world wins. For sure. And so that's very much our goal. I mean, this is a, it's a big vision. It's going to take a while to work on. Um, in the midst, I mean, we're talking about a company that is taking advantage of all the deep learning tools out there, the open source deep learning tools, because all these data scientists are using these sort of things. We're talking about a company that takes advantage of all the infrastructure that is plugged into the stock market, which is this really effective hive mind we have. And we're also talking about a world where cryptocurrencies are increasingly stable and numeri is leveraging the fact that ethereum has reached some stability you're actually building a smart contract on top of it that does something you know you when ethereum first came out people were talking about oh let's build decentralized napster platform or something and there were all these theories around stuff and this is a tangible thing that you're building on top of it so this is a broad question but what is what are some of the other things that we're going to see as a result of this confluence of really big changes that are happening in our world? I give see me you're give asking. me give me your most your most far flung like crazy ideas that you wouldn't tell other people. <laughs> it depends on what kind of time horizon we're thinking of. I mean, ten years is a really long time for me. That's what I call long term. Okay, let's ten, do ten years. Okay. I mean, we're both still alive then. Most of the listeners are still alive in ten years. Right. So that's I like that one. Right. Okay. In ten years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think AIs are going to be controlling an immense number of things in ten years, and uh, I mean, definitely cars, definitely um, a lot of the stock market, and I think. It's, I mean, I think one of the challenges is actually going to be understanding how human skills fit in with something that is so much better at us at so many things. And it's in every way a good thing because, I mean, humans shouldn't be doing mundane tasks. The markets should be efficient. 
um, there's really there's no loss for anyone if the market is efficient. And yeah, I mean, on the ultimate horizon is I I think um, humans becoming completely obsolete. So either evolving out of what we currently are or ceasing to exist because there's something better. Right. So is that in the t- you think that's no, the ten, no. ten, you don't think that's, that's, that's not ten years twenty no. fifty. Um, that's really difficult to say. Yeah. I pretty big question mark. Yeah. It's definitely not 10 years because that's where, I mean, way before that, we have to worry about safety. Right. Now is not the time to worry about safety. That's something, okay. that's something I very much disagree with. Oh, really? Yeah. I think most of the people who worry about safety actually don't know very much about AI. Elon doesn't. Um, but I think most of the people who do are, are, who are actually very knowledgeable about AI do not worry about safety right now because it's really just, um, it's really just very fancy logistic regressions. And nobody was worried about AI when all we had was, were logistic regressions. So, um, at one day, one day, a, a really, really advanced logistic regression will be dangerous, but we're very, very far from that. I think Andrew Ng was actually very accurate when he said, worrying about AI safety right now is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. One day it will be a problem, but we've got to get s- somewhere close to it before we worry about it. Hmm. We don't have enough information to worry about it right now. We don't have enough information to worry about it right now. I mean... But we're going to have to worry about it eventually, and we already know that. So you think it should? So like the people at OpenAI, you think they just should should close up shop and go work on something that is more proactive rather than preventative, or no? And actually, I think most things that are happening at OpenAI are proactive and right. not preventative. I mean, all of the papers they've published pretty much all of them have not been about safety. I mean, all of the tools that they have released, they're not about safety. I mean, they're, um, I mean, they just released a platform for testing AIs on many different video games. That's not about safety. That's about trying to improve AIs on video games. And that's a great direction. I love the research that OpenAI is doing. Yes, their mission statement is safety because the billionaires who gave them money are worried about that. But Do you think they're worried about it or do you think it's a red herring to get some research done in the AI space? That's interesting. I doubt that they're uh, lying. Uh, Perhaps they're actually worried about it, but... I mean, Elon is worried about a lot of things. He's worried that we're in a simulation. He's worried about gray goo. He's I don't think the simulation thing is a worry. That's just an observation. Yeah, potentially. I suppose I suppose you could be right that it's... I, well, he worries about it insofar as he thinks about it. Yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... You think it's a waste of time? I, I do think it's a waste of time. So... I mean, I think it's a waste of time for similar reasons that religion is a waste of time. You can't do anything with it. Well, it's a more... I, so I, I agree with you, it's on the same plane as religion, but if you, if you take a probabilistic you know, vision of the world and you say, okay, you know, what's the probability we're living in a simulation versus not living in a simulation? Mm-hmm. Like, let's throw religion out the window. You know, there's, there's a, you can take a probabilistic notion if you say, okay, we're living in a simulation... That's, to some people, I mean, myself included, that's reassuring. Mm -hmm. I mean, I find that a more comforting notion than the ambiguities of reality. Yeah. But anyway, I don't know. We're getting... But we don't have... But but God is comforting, too. And we don't have any evidence for God. Okay, sure. But what's the null hypothesis, then? What's your null hypothesis for reality? Does that mean... So, so you, if you, if you're, I mean, fine. Okay. God's comforting, but it's probably not true. We have no evidence for it. Let's ignore that. Yeah. Uh, the simulation, you know, seems probabilistically likely, but we have, well, maybe not. We have no evidence for it. I mean, what's the null hypothesis? Like, do you say the null hypothesis is reality as it seems, or do you say that the null hypothesis is, uh, whatever you makes you feel good or do you, it seems like you just don't even care about it you don't even think about it like you have no evidence therefore you don't even think about it you just it's an existential coin flip who cares so i suppose i am in favor of pursuing any endeavor where we can collect data and there are some interesting 
ideas for potentially doing this in the simulation direction. I don't believe any of it has been done, but it was just kind of like, uh, I know very little about this yeah. degree of physics. So right. this is just me reading headlines in passing. So I'm in favor of pursuing the collection of any kind of data that can be collected. But insofar as what is my null hypothesis or do I think about this, the answer is mostly no, for the reason that I can't do anything with it. Right. So, or like, if, if we are in a simulation, does that actually answer the null hypothesis? What happens when you get to the, the last turtle? Uh, where's the null hypothesis then? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Um, do you have any interesting views on cryptocurrencies that I might not hear anywhere else? Sure. I think I differ from a lot of the cryptocurrency community in that Bitcoin is not the alpha and the omega. It's kind of become a reserve currency. It's something that there's a lot of support for. So it's very easy to turn USD into it and, and vice versa. But it's not a platform. It's very hard to make Bitcoin side chains. And I'm very much not a Bitcoin maximalist. There's also the fact that the Bitcoin community has been terribly gridlocked and have made no progress on most of Bitcoin's problems for the past couple of years. So I'm very much in favor of what Bitcoin maximalists call altcoins. So Ethereum, um, even Tezos. So I'm very much in favor of cryptocurrency platforms. So distributed ledgers, distributed blockchains that make it easy to do more things with them. And even new cryptocurrencies that don't potentially have some of the problems that Bitcoin has, like transaction speeds, etc. When you say that sidechains are hard to, to build on top of it, so I know Blockstream is working on those, uh, and... You could envision a world where if they get sidechains working well and you can get transaction volume up, mm-hmm. then first to market being Bitcoin mm-hmm. is a great utility. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that the bureaucratic morass, the technical issues are perhaps enough to hold Bitcoin back from being that utility currency, that flexible utility platform. I mean... If Bitcoin is able to solve all of its problems and become a platform that's as easy to use as Ethereum, then I'm all in favor of it. I have no qualms with that at all. But as it stands, it's very difficult to use it as a platform. And Ethereum has a lot of advantages compared to it. I mean, there are even problems with Bitcoin in terms of a massive amount of blockchain power is held by a very small number of miners in the world. That's another problem with Bitcoin that some other blockchains don't have. Okay. Well, Xander Dunn, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much, Jeff. It was really awesome. <laughs>